Hello and welcome to my office. It's Carrie Lorenz. Thanks for joining me for conversations with fearless leaders from around the world as we discuss the mechanics of high performance, success and failure, and what it takes to achieve more than you ever thought possible. Through our conversation ahead today, I hope to challenge you uh, and inform and inspire you to move to a higher level of performance through presence and then to go further faster. And that message starts right now. Stepping into my office this week is Dr. Amy Cuddy, a social psychologist, New York Times bestselling author, award-winning Harvard lecturer, and expert on the behavioral science of power, presence, and prejudice. Dr. Amy Cuddy, welcome to my office. Thank you, I am so glad to be here with you. Uh, and we are glad to have you here. You know, I've been such a super fan of yours for so long, and you've completed such a large, well, I say completed, you're still, you're still a, a great researcher, such a large body of research, though, over the last two decades, really, some centering around how our bodies can influence our brains and behavior. Uh, in fact, your 2012 TED Talk, Your Body Language May Shape Who You Are, was named as one of the online talks that could change your life. It's one of the, I think it's still the second most watched TED Talk online, is that right? It's third now. Oh, third, ooh, well, you know what? I think you have something like 60 million views, which is amazing and it's a great talk, but, but for those people who are listening right now who maybe haven't seen it yet, what is a power pose? Oh, well, I mean, you know, it's funny, it's, it, I, Sometimes I'm I'm actually sorry that I use the term power pose because it might be it, it's it's too cute it's too sticky and people people think only of you know standing like Wonder Woman with your hands on your hips and your feet apart but I'd say more generally the idea is that it's an expansive physical posture right so if you imagine what people do when they run across the finish line in first place or when at really any sporting event you know and they throw their arms up in the air in the victory pose they puff out their chest they lift their chins that's a power pose so it's the kind of expansive posture that people adopt when they feel powerful so what does psychology tell us about uh the relationship between these postures and power uh, well, I mean, it's interesting because they are related in both directions, meaning when people feel powerful, they expand, they adopt these, you know, expansive victory poses or, you know, the hands on the hips. But it's also the case that when people adopt these postures, it causes them to feel more powerful. So mm. it, it works in both directions. So. Mm -hmm. You know, when you cross the finish line, yes, you throw your arms up in the air because when you cross the finish line in first place, I should say, um, you throw your arms up in the air because you are feeling very powerful in that moment, right? And that's true in, in every culture in which it's been studied. So it's been studied in dozens of cultures by a researcher named Jessica Tracy at the University of British Columbia, who has really demonstrated that expanding our bodies is a universal expression of power as a kind of, if you think of it as an emotional state, right? As opposed to a fixed status. Power is also is not just a fixed status, like in a hierarchy, it's also an emotional state. We can feel more or less powerful regardless of our 
of our hierarchical status. So when we feel powerful, we do those things, but when we, we expand, but when we expand, it also makes us feel powerful. And that applies not just to, you know, throwing your arms up in the air in the victory pose or standing with your hands on your hips, but also just more subtle things like the difference mm -hmm. between slouching and neutral. Right. So mm -hmm. there's a lot going on just there. So when we slouch, we feel less powerful. We feel sort of less optimistic, less positive. Our mood is lower. Just sitting up straight changes that. Sitting up straight makes people feel happier, more optimistic, more confident. And those are studies that have been done in my field, social psychology, but also clinical psychology with populations of people who have major depressive disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder, right? So, so you see these effects for people who are suffering from conditions that affect people's sense of personal power, and also for people who are not necessarily suffering from those, those conditions. It's an incredibly powerful tool to make yourself feel more confident before walking into a stressful situation or doing a challenging physical activity you know to find some private space and kind of puff yourself up you know make yourself expansive even walking in an expansive way like longer strides swinging your arms more up and down vertical bounce that reflects positive mood and also causes positive mood so that the idea really is that your body is not just sort of expressing your state. Your body is also causing your state, if that makes sense. Mm, I love that. And for me, I mean, I, I love and I've researched and, and been fascinated by the mechanics of, of high performance, of success and failure. And we have such globally visible symbols of that, I think. So we're during Olympic season right now. And I just never get the visual of gymnasts that even if they go caterwauling, you mm -hmm. know, sideways off a balance beam, or they inadvertently after doing some triple back handspring twisty thing that my body will never be able to do, but they step out of bounds by, by two or three steps at the yep. end of every routine. It's always that, you know, big arched back, arms in the air. And what's fascinating to me from a coaching perspective is the difference in even how some coaches respond to those athletes as they walk off the floor, walk off the mat, walk off the court. You know, either a back slap, you've got it, or a, maybe a response in frustration. But regardless of that, it is that in that moment of, maybe not living up to the routine that they thought they wanted to do or having that misstep, having that misplaced foot, that you're trying to re-trigger a positive feeling of control, right? Or of emotion that that winning pose. I don't know. I could be, I'm not the one who's a psychologist, but I just look at the sports performance perspective of it even. Oh, there's that, so much there. That I Right? Mean, that know. we're trying to physically change our state so our right. brain is able to take over and head back immediately in a positive performance direction. Sure. I used to be a professional ballet dancer and it, you know everything's choreographed. Every tiny little movement is choreographed. I mean, you know, to the, you know, do you move your chin a centimeter or an inch? Um, and 
and so I'm used to choreographed movement and gymnastics is actually an interesting example because the routines are choreographed, but that power pose is also choreographed, right? So mm -hmm. regardless mm -hmm. of whether you fall off the beam four times or not, you start in that pose and you end in that pose, you pop back up and you, you know, you throw your arms in the victory pose again. It is interesting to watch after someone's had a tough time in their routine, you know, they don't stay in that pose as long. They kind of pop right. up and do it quickly. Right. And there's almost a sense of shame in doing it. I feel mm -hmm. like they feel like I know I have to do this, but I feel ashamed because I just disappointed myself and my coach, which I think is really unfortunate that that's the feeling that I get from it. And that, that anyone would have to feel that way at that level of sport, you know, to, to feel like a failure because they didn't do it perfectly. But I do think the whole, all of these little interactions that aren't happening on the court or on the mat are also really important. Like you said, like how the coach responds or interactions, like if you're watching basketball or, or soccer, football, you know, watching the interactions among players on the bench is really interesting because there's always sort of an unofficial team leader who may or may not also be the official team leader, but the unofficial team leader, the person who's the most respected by the other members, that person's body language is so important, mm -hmm. right? So, and I've worked with a lot of college coaches on this issue. How do you train that person? Because their body language is not just affecting how they feel, it's also affecting how their teammates feel, right? So the problem is when you have an athlete who's really skillful, really good, everyone looks up to them, but they don't deal well non-verbally with tiny failures, right? So if you think of like a basketball game, it has, it's, it's every basketball game for both teams is a series of, of wins and failures, wins and failures, right? It's not just the end score. You're making shots and missing shots. So what happens when you miss a shot? What's your body language? And if the leader looks defeated every time there's a, a small failure and the teammates are looking to that leader, they're adopting that same sense of temporary powerlessness that takes them out of the game. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I know it's one thing that I've been trying to even have conversations with the companies that I work with, the teams that I'm working with right now is that even in these times of chaos and uncertainty, even that the biggest challenge and opportunity of the moment right now, I think is learning how we can overcome our circumstances instead of being overwhelmed by them. And Amy, what I'm seeing, or the, the story I'm telling myself, is that there's a really interesting weave between resilience, you know, that ability to withstand, uh, recover, adapt, and even grow in the face of stressors and presence and having that ability to believe in and trust yourself. If you don't have the capability to have a foot on both of those horses, if you will, in the circus, mm -hmm. in these really hard times, that's going to be a big struggle. So how do you think that people can raise, I'm not even gonna phrase this correctly, probably raise their skill set in developing presence? Did I say that right? I think that's great. I love the way you said it. I love the idea of, of having a skill set around presence. <laughs> that's it's 
I guess it's what I think of sort of as actionable takeaways when I'm talking mm -hmm. about the mm -hmm. topic, mm -hmm. but it is a skill set around presence or it's, mm -hmm. it's funny. I have a, a friend who's a, a Baptist minister here in Boston, who's done some amazing work that I used to teach about at Harvard Business School. His name is Jeffrey Brown, if, and he has a wonderful TED talk on that work if you get a chance to watch it. But he sort of jokes, he's like, you, you don't know it, Amy, but you're actually a preacher. And I'm like, why do you say that? And he said, because you're, you're, you teach presencing and he, he uses it as a mm. verb, which I think is really interesting. He said that, that, that in the church, sometimes people talk about it, presencing. Right, as, as an actual mm. skill, right? I Isn't, love that's that. Kind of I love it that. Way. It's funny, it's not like a, it's it's a word that I think we, we think of presence as sort of like a means to an end, as opposed to a, a thing in itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it is a skill. So I think some of the some of the things that people need to keep in mind first are that the way that I think of presence is it's not a permanent state that anyone ever reaches, right? No, because we're human, right? Unless you transcend and become something other than human, you know, you're going to not be present all the time. Everyone is distracted. Everyone is having thoughts like poking in and, and taking them away from the moment or concerns or worries. But you still can be better at harnessing the ability to be present in these stressful interactions, like the interactions that you approach with you know, a sense of dread, um, like, you know, giving a talk or giving negative feedback to somebody or dealing with a difficult client. Uh, and then when you're in those moments, you execute them with anxiety and distraction, and then you leave feeling regretful that you didn't fully show up. That makes it very hard to do it again. And it makes it very hard to accept a negative outcome. If you could learn to approach those situations with a kind of composure, and execute them with a calm and calming confidence and leave them feeling satisfied knowing that you did everything that you could do to make things happen then it's much easier to do it the next time and you're more likely to actually get the outcome that you wanted mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. that the presence is your ability to access and you know comfortably express that that best version of yourself for that situation. It's interesting to me because again, I'm internalizing and thinking about in my experience in aviation and certainly as being a former fighter pilot, uh, you know, we weren't born uh, with those magical abilities to prioritize tasks or manage stress really well in a high pressure environment and similar to any other high performers I've worked with, again, whether that's Olympic athletes or high performing executives, every single one of those people have learned the skills and the tools and paired them with both confidence and competence mm -hmm. necessary to do those things. And that comes through relentless preparation and training. So it's, you know, how do you, how do you access that? How do you find that ability so that when you're under pressure, when you're under stress, you can trust yourself that you'll be able to figure it out. Yeah. Right? And it's, it's, it's interesting to think about also that, that learning to be present is part of your, your preparation and your training, mm -hmm. right? It's not, it's not secondary, you know, it's, it should be, it should be thought of as, as a sort of a primary skill. 
right? So, right. so right. you can't, because you can't reveal your competence. You literally, you cannot function at your highest if you can't be present. And, you know, lots of research shows that when people, and I, here I'm gonna tie power and presence together. When people feel powerless, it activates what, what psychologists call the behavioral inhibition system. And think of it as sort of your nervous system telling you that you're not in a safe situation, that you're being threatened, that there's imminent threat, and that you, you better shut down or get the heck out of there. So basically, when we feel powerless, it activates the fight, faint, or flee response. We feel like we're being chased by a predator, and so our, our body and mind start to coordinate to get us out of there. And that's not really very useful when you're going into a work meeting, right? Like if you're actually being chased by a tiger, probably that's the right response. But it's almost like sort of our brains haven't caught up with the reality of our lives and don't realize that the anxiety that we're experiencing is not because we're about to be chased by a tiger, but because we're feeling afraid of being judged negatively by other humans. Mm -hmm. We're mm -hmm. not actually at, at risk of dying. We are at risk of losing a deal or not getting the job or getting turned down when we ask someone out on a date or something like that. So the adaptive response would actually be sort of the opposite, which is to feel powerful. And when we feel powerful, it activates the behavioral approach system. So to contrast those two, the inhibition system is telling us to withdraw. It doesn't allow us to be ourselves, right? We hide who we are. It shuts down our sort of our, our breadth of thinking. So we become less creative. We're less co cognitively capable, less cognitively agile. We become more pessimistic. We doubt ourselves. We don't trust others. We're simply less likely to act. So when we feel powerless, we're less likely to act when that inhibition system is activated. The approach system is making us more optimistic. It makes us more confident. It makes us see other people not as potential predators or competitors, but as potential allies and collaborators and friends. It makes us open to hearing what other people are saying, which I think is pretty mm -hmm. interesting, mm -hmm. that feeling powerful actually makes it easier, easier for us to hear other people. That's not what we think of when we think of the word power, because power has this negative connotation in our culture. When I say to people, what's the next word you think of when you, when you think of the word power, the next word that comes up the most frequently, well, guess what it is? Oh, I hate to say it, but I'm gonna go with corrupt. That's right. It's corrupt, right? That's the oh, next word that comes yeah. up. So when people think of power, they think of corruption. And that's unfortunate because one, they're thinking of one kind of power, which is social power, mm -hmm. and that's power mm -hmm. over others. But even, you know, two, even that kind of power does not inevitably lead to corruption or even lead to corruption most of the time. It it leads to corruption when it interacts with other things like societal factors like if you look at a place with political and economic systems that are that are falling apart and then you have another interaction with a the person holding the power having a personality disorder for example you throw these things together you get corruption but power generally doesn't and there's also this other kind of power which is the power that i am speaking about and that's personal power it exists in you it's your it's it's a agency you know you're feeling that you have mm -hmm. some control over your outcomes and your behavior it's 
self-efficacy, you know, knowing that you're capable of doing this thing. It is confidence, true confidence. That's the kind of personal power that I'm talking about. So it's not power over others, it's power to do things, right? It's really, in a way, you can think of it as power over yourself, the power to bring that self forward. And my favorite quote about power, which gets at this concept of, you know, uh, power and corruption is from Robert Caro, the historian who wrote, you know, a lot about Lyndon Johnson. And someone once asked him in an interview, does power corrupt? And he says, power does not necessarily corrupt, but power always reveals. And I love that, right? Power mm -hmm. allows us to reveal who we are. And it's our work to be our best selves, right? Power has nothing to do with that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's up to us to be good, to be skillful, and to be good people. Power is just going to allow us to show whatever we are to the rest of the world. Power reveals who we are. So power allows us to be our most competent. Well, and I think that's definitely one of the things that I think you've articulated and have written about so beautifully in your book, Presence that it's not just netted down into a fluffy little, okay, let's let's stand like Wonder Woman real quick for two minutes and everything's going to be magical, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, yes. it's, right, It's but it's understanding the combination of all of these different factors that then allows you to bring your better self to every situation. And that, and that to be fair, that you called it the fight, faint, fight, faint or flee, yeah, I, I say fight. I think I call it flight or freeze. Is that you're right? Clearly, that that heading into a boardroom, those are all very suboptimal uh, coping mechanisms. However, they're also there's nothing to be ashamed if that when you're under stress and duress, that that's how you end up responding because it's your body trying to protect you from from danger right yes we're probably not going to be chased by a lion but that doesn't mean that that feeling of what's happening that feeling of vulnerability isn't headed down that same path and the the key is to all of that is to be able to recognize it and even have the language really quickly to identify what's happening so you can take an action and do something else next right and each time you do that then it gives you a little more strength and a little more courage and a little more confidence to step in more fully and more present the next time. Right, because one of my favorite psychological theories is called self-perception theory, and it's very simple. It's that there was this sort of struggle in psychology to figure out why people's kind of beliefs and attitudes weren't good predictors of their actions. This work was done by a researcher named Daryl Bem at Cornell. And he said, well, part of it is that sometimes we don't even know what our beliefs and attitudes are. We actually infer them from our actions, right? So we, we see ourselves doing something and say, oh, I guess I like that thing, or I guess I'm good at that thing. And so the, the funny thing here is that when we perceive ourselves doing something well, it's easier for us to do it well again the next time. We say, oh, I guess I'm good at that, right? And that changes our ability to do it well the next time. So sure. it, it's our actions kind of build on themselves in, in that in that self-reinforcing uh, way. Yeah, but yes, it, there's certainly nothing, nothing to be ashamed of that, that that's our response, that fight, flee, faint 
uh, fight, faint, flee, however you want to say it, fight, freeze, flee, that that is our response in a lot of situations. Again, partly just because that's what you're, that's how our brains are hardwired. So there's, there's, it's neither good nor bad in, in, in itself. It's sort of what you do with it. And there are things that you can do even in the moment um, to get yourself kind of out of that spiral. A lot of people will ask me like, what if I'm giving a talk and I, I get dry mouth and I start to breathe really shallowly and I can't think clearly. You know, you re they really feel that they're going into that, that response, that in inhibited response. And the first is to notice and not panic about your panic, right? So often it's not anxiety that's the problem, it's our anxiety about our anxiety that's the problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in those moments, if we start to really panic about the fact that we're panicking, then it goes into a, a sort of, you know, um, well, death spiral, you know, that that's, that's when you're, it's, I feel funny using um, those kinds of that kind of language with a fighter pilot. Oh, no, but it's, it's legitimate. Believe me, the don't panic about your panic. That, that could be a poster in in many offices, many rooms, lots of appropriate places. Because when you do that, as you know, you when you start panicking, when that anxiety becomes unworkable, you start making much uh, worse decisions, right? Right. No. Right. And, yeah. And and, and, and and calm is contagious, and yes. panic is also <laughs> exactly. And so, it, in the moment when that's happening, you know, there are things that we can do. Like I, I, I tell people, if you if you're a nervous public speaker, and I'm just going to stick with public speaking for a minute, do first of all hold something in your hand that will prevent you from wrapping your arms around your torso or you know one of the nervous things i see people do is they'll take their dominant hand and wrap it around their opposite arm right above the elbow mm -hmm. can you protecting yeah right oh, yeah exactly. protecting yourself yeah. or they'll touch their necks or play with mm -hmm. their hair or their jewelry or their tie you know they'll they'll loosen their tie things like this hold something like a water bottle or a slide advancer, something in your hand that forces you to keep one hand away from your body so that you can't do that. If you feel yourself starting to panic, starting to breathe really quickly or your mouth going dry, pause because slowing your speech is a power move. It's actually associated with power. When people speak slowly and pause, people see them as more powerful, not less powerful. The funny thing though, is that our impulse when we're feeling powerless is to not give people any space to break in, right? So we speak really quickly, partly because we want to get out of there and we don't pause because we're afraid that pausing makes us vulnerable to attack. And so we do all the opposite things. When you slow your speech, research by Deb Grunfeld at Stanford Graduate School of Business. I'm not sure if you know Deb. I feel like you two should know each other. Mm. But she uh, teaches a great class at Stanford called Acting with Power, and it's all about these things. But she finds that when we speak slowly, it makes us feel more powerful. When we speak quickly, it makes us feel less powerful. So slow your speaking. Pause. Pausing also allows you to kind of collect your thoughts and the funny thing is that to an audience, pausing is like this punctuation mark. It's like you saying, hey, what I just said was really important. And so they refocus. You actually re regain their attention when you do that. 
And then, you know, of course, there are all kinds of simple breath techniques that you can use even while you're the center of attention that will calm your nervous system. Counting your breathing, which you can do even in that one pause, something called four, seven, eight breathing, where you inhale for four counts hold your breath for seven and exhale for eight counts. You can do this without people noticing that you're, you're even doing it. That triggers something called the relaxation response, which is the opposite, again, of that inhibition response. Right? So, so all of those things are things that you can do in the moment to calm yourself. What you don't want to do is decide that because you're feeling panicked, you're doomed. Because you're not. You can pull yourself out of it. Right. And I love that even those tips people want the quick fix. They want the magic button. They want, okay, I'm all in on that. Just make it better. And it is these tiny tweaks. It's, it's the doing one thing. It's, it's not trying to fix everything, if you will. And I put air quotes around fix because I don't yeah. mean you're broken. I mean, just making an adjustment. I have to tell you, I think there's magic and, and, and you, you kept moving, but my brain is still back about two paragraphs ago, if you will. Oh, um, that's <laughs> that the reason that people oftentimes will speak really, really quickly, and I think about even in discussions where there might be conflict involved or very strong personalities or jockeying for perceived power mm -hmm. in a room or mm -hmm. in a conversation, is that if they you feel, and again, this is about those feelings, those pesky feelings, that you feel that if you take a breath or leave a space, that that actually is making you vulnerable to attack. Right. That's why people just pile drive their way through a conversation because they feel like if I dominate, you can't push back. I know. And you see, it's funny. I see it. People love to tag me in photos of politicians speaking when they're doing something, some awkward pose on stage. Um, and you know, just, I think they're saying like, well, this doesn't look right, does it, Amy? You know, and I'm like, no, it doesn't look right. You know, I mean, so, so let me just back up for a minute. I mean, one thing I, I, you know, I always say is that you don't want to do these things while you're on, sorry, I, when I say these things, I'm talking about the really expansive poses, right? You don't want to do them when other people are focusing on you, when you're sort of performing, and I'll put that in quotes as air quotes as well. But because that's domineering. It looks it looks really out of touch. And it looks like you don't want, you know, when you're interacting with people, your goal is to to learn to maybe to influence, but to sort of build trust, so that you, you can communicate that you can exchange information and maybe move them in some way. When you're going coming in domineering, you know, what you're saying is like, I'm in charge, you're going to listen to me. And I don't care about you. I'm not interested in you. You need to convey mm -hmm. that you're confident, but also that you're interested, right? That you that you want to be there. You you need to you can't walk in thinking that you're going to get respect by being domineering. You need to you need to earn it and and you you earn it by giving it to some extent, right? So the 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 postures that we use when we're actually in front of other people should have that balance of confidence and caring and interest. You know, I want to be here because what happens is that people come across instead as arrogant and arrogance is is not confidence. You know, arrogance is you know, I, I call it a smokescreen for insecurity. It's 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 kind of a wall that people put up to prevent other people from challenging them. And it's it's not effective at um, 
you know, building good professional or personal relationships. It, it is good at getting people not to challenge you, but not because they respect you, because they don't want you in the room anymore. <laughs> they just want to, want to get right. you out of there. Confidence is welcoming, right? Confidence is not threatening. It's welcoming and it's welcomed because people actually like being around truly confident people. They're not put off by it. They, they like it. It's reassuring for people. Right. So your confidence is is a way of saying, I have you like I've got this. You don't have to worry about me, Like you don't have to worry that I'm going to fall apart. Um, and also you can trust me. I care about you. So it's, you know, confidence, not arrogance. Confidence really is a tool. Well, and Amy, I think that with, you know, part of where we see a disconnect or where I've seen a disconnect in that and I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I, I think about even you were mentioning a little bit being on stage. It's if somebody were to take a picture or a screenshot from every presentation that I've done over the last 10 years, 100% you're going to get some wacky thing where I'm trying to describe something with my hands, right? That somebody could say, that doesn't look like a power move. Yeah, and I'm like, right. well, okay, but I'm trying to describe whatever, right? X, Y, or Z. But what we're I find to be the disconnect sometimes is that if people are trying to in search of or aspiration even to have people think that they're confident or competent that they don't realize that there's a that there is a disconnect that the visual presentation what you are doing is actually going through the motions and you're not actually being authentic which brings me full circle around to why I've always been a fan of your your perspectives and your research and your approach to things because I don't feel like you just stumbled across this interesting little topic and you thought you would talk about it that you actually your life's journey and and your path was profoundly changed when you were 19. Mm -hmm. so at the risk of, of dabbling into that, can, can you share just a little bit with what happened to you when you were 19? Yeah, sure. I, so when I was 19, um, I was in a, a really bad car accident. My, yeah, my friend was driving. It was middle of the night. We were taking shifts. We were trying to get from Montana to Colorado overnight, get back in time for, for our morning classes. And, uh, and she fell asleep which is you know, not unusual on those long straight stretches in Wyoming at four in the morning, right? So she, she fell asleep and, and rolled, uh, sort of went off the road, hit the rumble strip and overcorrected. We were in a Jeep Cherokee in the early nineties and it rolled uh, and landed on the roof. Um, and I was thrown out of the car. And by, and my, by the way, my friends in the front were fine. I, I like to let people know because if, if I don't let people know right away, they worry about the, the other people. And, and, and thankfully they were in their seatbelts and they were fine. I was sleeping in the back because I was resting for my driving shift basically. And, uh, and didn't have my seatbelt on. We had the seats down and I was in a sleeping bag. You know, when I really fully woke up, I was in the hospital back in Boulder where I went to, to college. I felt like a totally different person. You know, I was in the hospital for a long time. I did, you know, years of, of cognitive rehab, it took me four extra years to finish college because every time I went back, I had to, I couldn't, I couldn't process spoken information. It was really hard and even, and, and, and written information, looking at a page sometimes looked like, you know, a nonsense scribble. 
it really set me back. And for me, the big thing was that it always had been sort of clear to me and, and, and re, re sort of affirmed by other adults in my life that I was smart. And so I never felt like, I felt like even if I mess up in other ways, it's okay because I'll, I'll have, I'll always have that. So I, it was really threatening to all of a sudden feel like that had been taken away from me. I, I just never thought that that's mm -hmm. something that I could lose. Mm -hmm. And over the next um, months, I took a, an IQ test as a, in a battery of, of other cognitive tests and learned that my IQ had dropped by 30 points, which is giant. That's two standard deviations. I, I knew my, I, by the way, people are like, well, how did you know your IQ before? And I knew it because I had been in the gifted program as a kid, right? So I had, mm -hmm. I had those documents. So I was gutted by that. And it was a process of redefining who I was to myself, right? I mean, I had friends telling me, oh, you're not the same person anymore, you're different. But I couldn't even really remember how I was before. You just, that kind of brain injury, which they call a closed head injury or a diffuse axonal injury, is basically just distributed all across the brain. It's like the layers of your brain when you stop or stop moving or start moving very quickly. And, and Carrie, I know you're aware of this too. I mean, g given, you know, that, that you're a pilot, when, when you accelerate very quickly or stop accelerating or you know, stop moving very quickly, all of those layers of the brain move against each other at different speeds because they're different densities. And that causes basically damage all throughout the brain because the axons connecting the neurons among those different parts are tearing um, or stretching in unusual ways. So you're going to have a, it's not like having a stroke in one area of the brain or having an object enter your brain and, you know, and, and mm -hmm. go through certain areas and land in one area. This is totally different. It's everywhere. It's like a little bit everywhere. So you're a little bit different in every single way. And that was tough, you know, so I had to sort of let go of the old self. I, it was like, I say it's sort of like when you, maybe this will resonate more with, with the younger listeners, but when you're in a not great relationship, but not terrible relationship, romantic relationship, and you stay in it because it's not terrible, right? <laughs> and you can't imagine what the future holds because you, you don't know who else is out there. So you just stay in it. I was sort of staying in this relationship with my old self, but unable to really form a bond with my old self because I didn't really know my old self anymore. And I eventually had to break up with that old self and without knowing what else was out there for me and allow myself to become this new self. I had to be trusting that there was a new self for me. Just like when you break up in that kind of, you know, mediocre relationship, you're breaking up trusting that there's a new person out there for you. You just don't know who it is yet. So it was really tough and it took many years to recover my sort of cognitive function. I did eventually get back those IQ points, but I worked hard at it and, you know, I had to learn to study and, and read and think in a different way. That's just amazing. And I just think about how many, how helpful your story of persistence, of resilience, of being able to work through what what I call uh, an experience of a crucible that 
at, you know, every person in life is, is going to face one at one time or another, that traumatic life-changing event that ends up forming not just the way you lead, uh, the way you live, the things that you believe are possible for you. Your story is one of, of such amazing recovery and tenacity and quite frankly, overcoming adversity that then that curiosity, that work, that uh, enormous devastation has allowed you to now uh, be a force multiplier for others in such a positive, impactful way. Thank you. I'm sorry you went through it. And also it's probably oddly enough, a, a gift that has impacted so many other people in such a positive way. Had it not happened, then that would not have happened. It's funny. I mean, I, I, I'm sure you've thought a lot about adversity and, and, and how it shapes you. And, and there's always this sort of, you know, when people say that it's like a blessing in disguise, I'm kind of like, eh. Not Not when you're in the middle of it, it sure doesn't feel that way. (laughs) Um, Or or like at least, at least you survived, which, which is true, but, but, but but there's a sort of um, dismissal of, yeah, but it changed me fundamentally at the same, but I like the, like there's, I think of it like there's a, there was a gift in it sort of, you know, like, of course, part of me wishes it had never happened. Who knows what I'd be doing now? It might be more interesting. It might be less interesting. It might be more helpful to others, might be less helpful to others. It's hard to know, but I I guess I feel like it's sort of, yeah, it's, it's what you do with it. And, and that's not to say that everyone is in a position to take their adversity and spin it into something that's going to help other people. There are all kinds of scars and setbacks and trauma that we can't control all of that, right? We have to deal with what's facing us at the moment. So I, I feel I do feel fortunate that I was able to sort of learn from that and take it, share it with other people in a way that was helpful. And at the same time, I don't want to put that expectation on anybody else. Oh, for sure. I mean, if you would have asked me when I was 20 years old where I would be 20 years later, 25 years later, this would not be it. Um, And I'm sure that might be the case for you as well. However, I think part of the lesson there, or I don't know, lessons a heavy lift word, but part of the, uh, the effect of all that is that it's, I just ask people to consider to always leave room for the possible. If we can figure out a way to take a step forward, if we can figure out what kind of self-talk we use, how that does actually influence your mindset, your abilities, your potential, um, and tilt toward the good, right? Tilt towards what's possible instead of letting what happened be the anchor that doesn't allow you to move forward. And again, I'm so grateful for the time that you shared with us. Are you still working on your second book? I am, yeah. I am working on a book about, focuses on sort of the psychology of adult bullying and bravery. It's called Bullies, Bystanders, and Brave Hearts. And, uh, and really it focuses on bystander behavior a lot. Like why, why are bystanders not getting involved and helping people who are being um, sort of brutalized um, socially or professionally unfairly by mobs of people? <laughs> and also just like calling attention to the fact that, hey, grownups, you know, you keep talking about kids mm-hmm. and bullying, but you're mm-hmm. not doing any better. And in fact, you're probably mm-hmm. doing worse. 
and and you're doing worse and doing better at doing worse if that makes sense mm, <laughs> leading so, by example 100 percent. <laughs> exactly and yeah. and so the kids must must i i imagine like 10 year olds at a sleepover getting together cracking up laughing at us telling them not to be bullies right who do we think we are to be telling kids not to be bullies when when they see it everywhere around them with the grown-ups anyway the, the the book is focusing on all of us have are, are capable of adopting any of those roles bully bystander brave heart but also th that we need to kind of take the focus off of the what i call the primary bullies the people who really are just going to stir the pot and go after people no matter what First of all, we're not going to change them easily. They need, they really, and I don't mean this facetiously, they need help, right? That they need, they need experts to, to change them, to help them change. Clinical psychologists, right? Psychiatrists, psychotherapists. Focusing on them is a waste of our, it's an inefficiency. The, the point is that without bystanders getting involved on that, on their side, they would be impotent. A bully without, without a mob, is really not not able to do is is, is just a jerk <laughs> you know mm -hmm. it becomes mm -hmm. the jerk who doesn't get invited to the party a bully gains all of his power from adopting other people you know from getting other people on the bandwagon that's where the power is and those are bystanders who are becoming what I call accessory bullies they become accessorized by the bully they're carrying out somebody else's mission and not their own it's not in their own interest it's it's not it's not a good look it's not decent it's unkind it's not productive and we all have been bystanders uh, you can be a, a sort of a bystander who becomes like i said an accessory bully or you could become a bystander who's sort of passively signal boosting the bully's message by liking their tweets or retweeting them or knowingly watching having the power to do something but not doing it anyone who honestly who just doesn't observe that it's happening at all is not a bystander that's just that's that's a person who's not involved but anyone who sees it and knows hey something's wrong here you're a bystander so what are you going to do with that who wants to be on their deathbed and have someone say you were such a great bystander your whole life <laughs> you know? right no one well, I think you're going to have a lot of ground to cover there, no doubt, I'm sure, everything from vulnerability to why people take action, why some people don't, and, you know, what can we actually do to carve a better path forward? Um, right. So I'll be, I'll be looking forward to that for sure. Well, do you have just, a, do you have another two seconds to answer a couple of fun of rapid fire questions? Yes. Uh, I follow you on Instagram, so I'm going to take a wild guess. I unfortunately probably know the answer to this question, but what is your go-to music you listen to when you work out? Oh, I, well, I, I mean, I'm a huge deadhead, and for people who aren't familiar with what that means, it means I'm a huge, huge fan of the Grateful Dead and now now Dead and Company. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I've seen them more than a hundred times and now see them probably 20 times a year. And, and that's my, that's my happy place. Oh gosh. I just love that. I think that's so that's awesome. So fun. Who do you think of as a mentor and what did you need to learn from them? Well, can I give it, this is maybe an unusual response because it's not, it's a sort of friendly acquaintance who 
I wouldn't say she herself is my mentor, but I was living in Utah for seven months through the pandemic. I'm a big skier and we were skiing a lot and we really got to know the people on this one block where our friends lived because they would every Sunday get together outside, really spaced very far apart on the street and chat because they had been living there, most of them for like 30 years on the same street. And it was a huge range of people. And one of them was an older German woman named Heike, who is in her early 80s, had skied her whole life. Amazing, like the most amazing posture, the most amazing athlete. And I loved her and my son Jonah really loved her too. And one day I was telling her about something that I was hoping would happen in Park City, which is where we were living, like a big project. I was like, yeah, I really hope someone does this someday. Cause you know, if they did, I'd want to be involved. And she goes, well, why don't you do it? And mm. she's like, you're perfectly suited to do this. You actually probably should be the person who does it. And I cannot, it's so funny. like to me that it had not even occurred to me to do, to be the person to do it. Why would I not do it? You know? So that voice, there's a voice in my head saying, now, why don't you do it? And I find whenever I meet people in my life who are like that, I look to those kinds of people as mentors. Oh, I love that. Why don't you do it? Mm, yeah, That's a good one. That's a really good one. What is the biggest misperception of you? I think there are, I, I, I do think I put out, you know, to the world a very true version of who I am. So I think that anyone who, you know, sort of follows me and has listened to me knows who I am. So I don't think those people have a lot of misperceptions. I think there mm -hmm. are certainly, you know, everyone has haters. And I think that the misperception of me that gets sort of perpetuated intentionally by some of those people is that I somehow strategically plan my life to get a job at Harvard and then somehow did research intentionally knowing that I wanted to give a TED talk and gave the TED talk knowing that I would then end up speaking regularly and writing a book. Like the, the idea that I was strategic in that way is so funny to my high school friends and to anyone who knows me well, because it's laughable. Like that is not how I live. I am game to do whatever somebody brings up at the last minute. Like I'm not strategic. I'm not planful in that way. And like when I was asked to give the TED talk, I did not know what a TED talk was. Oh, so glorious. it is, it does, it frustrates me because mm. you know, I, I feel like they see me as sort of greedy and, you know ambitious in a negative way and you know just trying to get to the top and man, that is not me i'm mm -hmm. the one who's like mm -hmm. that sounds fun that's a new mm -hmm. adventure cool i'll do that so that's the misperception is that like i planned all of this this whole path and it got me to where i wanted to be could not be farther from the truth i love that and and if it makes you feel any better your journey and your story of let's of success is so similar to so many people who in in those troughs and valleys have just had enough resilience to keep working to keep going to keep taking that next step which yeah. then to everybody on the outside looks easy i think so but, yeah <laughs> right but it's because they weren't in the trough with you they weren't seeing the twists and turns and and the crucibles they just exactly. see the outcome and they're like, well, right. of course it was easy for her, you know, right. blah, blah, right. blah. So yeah, that's, it's unfortunate. And, 
you know, in our very visual medium of social media that we have now today, uh, I don't think that's going to change for a lot of people because, you know, and comparison is the thief of joy. Oh, I know. So last two quick questions. Who plays you in a movie? Oh, I mean, this is not like, this this is not because I think I in any way look like her, um, but I just really think she's funny and charming and I love her is Emma Stone. I think she's oh, sure. Yeah, she's um, sassy and smart. I would be, you know, very lucky if if anyone ever said there was any kind of resemblance whatsoever physically, but it would be I think Emma Stone. I love oh, her. That's fantastic. So last one. We have one hundred dollars, a full tank of gas, and okay. the day off. Where are we going? Uh we're finding the closest outdoor live music that's happening tonight. That's where we're going. Mm, I'm all in sleeping bag in the car. That's it. Absolutely. Let's go. And I'm picking great... up many friends on the way. <laughs> and we're wearing seatbelts. Yeah, of way. course. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, absolutely. Uh, I'm driving tired. That's right. Well, Dr. Cuddy, if people want to get in touch with you or follow your continued journey, especially with your, your next book uh, in the works, where can they find you? Um, I mean, my website's amycuddy.com, but to be perfectly honest, I'm not nearly as active on that as I am on Twitter. Easy to find me there, uh, on Instagram, and on, you know, lately on Clubhouse, I host a weekly masterclass um, on public speaking on Tuesdays. It's actually Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time, and I'll be doing that for a few more weeks. Yeah, I think those are the best places, but, but yeah, my, my, my contact info is on my, my webpage. Awesome. Dr. Cuddy, thank you for carving out time today to share your story. It's it's quite remarkable and everything about presence. It's been a pleasure having you here today. I'm, I'm so grateful you joined. Likewise. It's been great talking to you. Gosh, it's it's been a pleasure. You're welcome. And thanks for listening. Uh, hopefully you found that entertaining and helpful. For links and resources, please visit carrylorenz.com. And if you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing that you can do is to just take a hot second and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or even on our YouTube channel. Sharing the show uh, or even your favorite episodes with friends or on social media is always appreciated. And lastly, if you want a little more information, feel free to text the word fearless to 33 444 for more information on leadership, span of control, and you'll be joining tens of thousands of other peerless leaders from around the world who will get a brief weekly or you know what, it's probably sometimes every other week at best recommendations on what to read, listen to and or watch. But thank you so much for tuning in. And please know that I appreciate you. And I'm super excited you dropped by my office.